We continue our journey today through First and Second Samuel. Uh, this journey began, I had to look it up, uh, May 1st, 2022. And we will uh, complete this journey, not today, um, but a couple Sundays after Easter. And for those of you that may be visiting today, or haven't been here the last few weeks, or need a refresher to set the stage where we are as we come to chapter 20, here is that refresher or that setting of the stage, metaphorically, if you will. If we go back to chapter 15, there was a rebellion in Israel. And that rebellion was led by the king's son. We could call him the wicked son, the evil son. It would be accurate. He did all sorts of wicked and evil things. His life, as far as it's recorded in Scripture, has very little that is recorded that is good. He was so wicked, he wanted the throne of his father now, and he wanted to kill uh, his father. In the process of accomplishing that goal, of taking over the kingdom and the palace and all of the glory and fame and power that comes with being the king, you, know, you have to use your imagination. You, you dress like no one else. You had food and privileges like no one else. You lived in the palace like no one else. You were the judge and jury, if you will, for many situations like no one else. So as Absalom seeks to take this, David, not Derek, David, <laughs> uncharacteristically to his early life, uh, David flees. Early in life, David was courageous and fought and, and, and stood guard and, and, and even went on attack. But David flees. He abandons Jerusalem and the palace with a minority of the people and a minority of the army. Absalom ends up occupying the palace after winning over patiently and strategically the majority of the country. The majority of the country were looking to Absalom as king, even though David was the anointed king. Then there was a battle, and that battle happened because David has started to turn somewhat. For years, David has been lacking courage. He hasn't been leading. He hasn't been doing well. But he begins to turn the corner, and he prays, and he sends out spies, and he sends out an army, and there is a battle in the forest. And in that forest, Absalom is defeated, and David is victorious. His men, David was protected and away from that battle. His men insisted on it. It was a wise strategy. And so then we come to last week's situation where David is trying to unify the country. And we saw him last week do some extraordinary things to unify the military and the country as he heads back across the Jordan River to Jerusalem and to occupy the palace. Well, before he gets there, in today's passage, there's another rebellion. There is another division among the people of Israel, and we call that Sheba's rebellion, and we read about it in chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. So I hope you have your Bibles open, your devices open. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. It says, now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, uh, happened to be there. He happened to be there as they are crossing the Jordan. 
that David has just done these things to bring unity to the country and, and to head back to the palace in Jerusalem. He happens to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Now that's kind of a slam in Jesse's son. We don't live in, in a very hierarchical culture where it really matters who your, who your parents are, what your bloodlines are. So this is kind of a stab at Jesse's son. This, this guy is not from a prominent family. We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So this troublemaker is basically trying to pull an Absalom here and say, come and follow me. This is not the guy to follow. I'm going to be the king. Verse 2, so all the men of Israel, that is the northern tribes of the nation, this isn't the entire country of Israel, but so all the men of the northern tribes deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. So here the reader goes, oh gosh, I thought we were going to have unity and harmony. And David and his nation lived happily ever after. That's what we want. We don't read that today. And spoiler warning, we don't read that at the end of 2 Samuel either. But praise God, we do read that at the end of Scripture. Amen? There is a king greater than David who will come and make all things right. But David is not going to be able to do that. So there is division as he is not even back in the palace yet. And verse 2 tells us, that the men of the northern tribes have deserted David, but the men of Judah, verse 2, stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan, that is from the Jordan River, to Jerusalem. Verse 3, and this begins the darkness here. There, there is a lot of darkness in this chapter. Verse 3, when David returned, the darkness has already started, it just gets darker here in verse 3. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but did not lie with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. So let's pause here for a few moments as far as journeying through the text. So this is troubling for us on many level levels. Uh, polygamy is not only something that is culturally distasteful to our culture, our secular culture in California, that is. There are very few sins, it seems, that our secular culture is in alignment with Scripture on, but this would be one of them. So we have a great cultural distance in, in just comprehending polygamy, but this was common in the ancient world, and it was especially common for kings. It was against God's word. It wasn't good. But what has happened here? There's actually some positives. If we can overcome the cultural distance that we have with what life was like 3,000 years ago, there are actually some positives here in, in verse 3. There, there are negatives as well. Um, he comes back to the palace. Remember, he left these wives or concubines, and you could paraphrase concubines as these are like his second-tier wives, if you will. And he left them there. He should not have left them there. And so we see a positive here. Notice it says in verse 3, he uh, put the house under guard. Uh, David should have done that when he left. Or he should not have left them there. He should have brought them with him. 
but he left them there, and you might remember what happened to them. They were abused by his own son. His own son was with David's wives very publicly as he moved into the palace that is Absalom. So he is protecting them now. What a husband should do is to protect his wife. His wife is what he should do. If he wrongly has a bunch of wives, he should protect them. And so David is doing that, and he provided for them. And he did not lie with them. Now, we might see that as offensive or as a negative, but this is actually a positive. What would have been expected in the ancient Near East as a king returns is to establish his authority by doing just that. But David doesn't do that. In other words, there is some compassion here, I would like to suggest. There's not much of it, but there is some compassion for them. He puts a guard, and he doesn't demonstrate, as his son did, that he is back in the palace by being with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. The reader has compassion, rightfully so, for these women. As we read a text like this, how does this relate to our lives? And and here's where I want to go. As we read the Old Testament, we have to read it in light of the New Testament and in light of the gospel of Jesus. And there is something that is not here in light of the New Testament that is so clear in the New Testament that, that, that should have happened. I don't know if your mind works like mine does or not, but my mind is screaming out here that what David needs to do is ask these women for forgiveness for having to endure what they endured and the shame that they now live with in being with their husband's son. But David does not do that. The New Testament emphasizes so central to our lives as as Christ followers is forgiveness and extending forgiveness. We see this emphasized. We've looked at this passage several times in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We see the importance of forgiveness when we have offended someone else in Matthew 5. Jesus says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and this isn't the church context here, this is the ancient Israel context of going to the temple in Jerusalem and following the law of God and bringing your offering. So if you're going to do what the Bible says and present your offering and, and you're there, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering. Don't do what the Bible says in that instance, but first go and do something else. Go, what does it say? Go first and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So delay your corporate worship. When you know that someone has something against you and be reconciled, seek forgiveness and be reconciled. This is fundamental to living out the Christian life. And so a believer, a Christian reading verses 1 through 3, to me this screams out, this is what should have happened with David. Now in that day and age, perhaps David fell prey to the hierarchical kind of culture and societal structure that was there. And and these women may have I don't know, but I'm just hypothesizing that David may have thought they were just so 
you know, he, he's just not going to have that kind of intimate conversation with them. It's tragic if that's what he was thinking. We don't know what he's thinking. I'm just expressing my thoughts out loud before you. But back to the New Testament. As this chapter is full of darkness, I have three questions for us to ask in applying this chapter. And one of the fundamental questions for living the Christian life that all of us should use, not necessarily in these exact words, but in some words, some expression like, will you forgive me for blank? David should have said to these wives, will you forgive me for not bringing you with me? Will you forgive me for not posting guard? Will you forgive me for not sending the army to protect you when Absalom came and abused you as a demonstration of his power and authority and kingship? So our uh, lives are very different than David's. But in many ways, they are incredibly similar. So we should be asking the question, what is the mutual human condition that I share with David that I need God's grace to help me? And it involves seeking forgiveness frequently and constantly. Uh, Raise your hand if you offend or sin against those you're in relationship with. Go ahead. (laughs) That's all of us. That's all of us. So I actually brought a prop today to demonstrate one of mine. This is a, uh, a cookie sheet. This is a very old cookie sheet. We got this for our wedding uh, in 1992, which is not relevant to why I have it here, but so I'd let you know that. Um, and I have a, a habit, you know, my culinary level is at the level of putting like a leftover piece of pizza on here and putting this in the oven and heating up my leftover piece of pizza. Anybody, with, anybody out there with that level, that level skill? A couple of you? Some of you are above that. That's my level. But then I have the tendency of leaving this thing. I leave this thing on top of the stove. You know, I put it in the oven, right? The stove is the top part. The oven's the square inside. So I put it in the oven, I heat up, but then after I eat my pizza, I just leave this thing on the top. I, probably none of you have ever done that. <clears throat> but when I do, there's a certain person in my household that gets upset with me. And she should uh, when I do that. And so when this certain person, who I won't mention her name, she might be here today, but what I should do when that happens is I should say, hey, will you forgive me for leaving that cookie sheet on the oven again, and I should wash that thing, and I should not do that. This is part of the Christian life. It is part of how God calls us to live. If we are going to have strong and healthy relationships, whether it's a marriage relationship or just a Christian friendship, there is going to be a constant acknowledgement of failure, of sin. And, And I want to suggest that we do not use language like, hey, I'm sorry, So I'm sorry that the focus is on me. I'm sorry I left the cookie sheet. That that, that is a focus uh, on me, and I'm sorry. Whereas for Christians, 
will you forgive me for, and you name it, forgiveness. Christ has forgiven us for everything that we've done, and that part of our life is just forgiving others. That's, we are to be constant forgiving of, of others and seeking forgiveness from others. So it is fundamentally different to say, will you forgive me for, and naming it, than saying, I'm sorry. Now, if I you know, accidentally grab her cup of coffee and take a drink of it or something, that, that might be a good way to say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to grab yours. But for something like this, it is good to name it and ask for forgiveness. This is out of verses 1 through 3. Let's come back to our text of 2 Samuel chapter 20, and we're in verse 4. David has returned to the palace, and the country, the nation, is already divided again. But David has done something good in this very imperfect world that he's living in. He's contrasted with Absalom in verses 1 through 3. And David is also contrasted with his prior practice implicitly here of utilizing these women. He is not going to do that anymore. So this is hard for us 3,000 years later to see that as a positive, but I want to suggest that is a positive. Verse 4. So then the king says to Amasa. Now, if you've forgotten who Amasa is, Amasa was the opposition's general that David made general of his army. David fired Joab and made Amasa his general. And so the king says to Amasa, summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days. You know, everything happened slowly back then. Everything travels by foot. Get the army together and be here yourself, verse 4. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. So what do we see here in verse 4? We see that David is a man of action again. For years, during Absalom's rebellion, he just allowed Absalom to develop authority and win the people over. David is not doing that this time. He is immediately summoning his army through Amasa, his new general, to go after this guy. Verse 6, David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape for us. We don't want him to get into a fortified city. Amasa hasn't done in the time framework that David expected, so he asks Abishai to do it. Go after this troublemaker, this worthless person. Uh, get after him. Verse 7, So Joab's men and the Carathites and Pelethites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri, this man who is worthless, this man who is uh, evil and looking for the authority that comes and the privilege of the king. Verse 8, while they were at a great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab, so we have the former general and the new general, the new general who hasn't done what David asked him to do. They're meeting. And Joab was wearing his military tunic and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. So let's pause here for a moment. So what is happening, I would like to suggest, what is happening here? is he has strategically designed his weapon to fall out as he approaches the new general. The formal 
former general and violent general who is excellent at hand-to-hand combat. His weapon happens to fall down just as he's coming to the new general. Verse 9, so Joab said to Amasa, the new general, how are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. This is the kind of thing men would do who loved one another in the ancient Near East. They would grab each other by the beard and give each other a kiss on the cheek. So Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand. So he has picked up the dagger that has seemingly accidentally fallen out of its sheath, and Joab plunged it into his belly, and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. The narrator, whoever wrote 2 Samuel, throughout First and 2 Samuel, mostly 2 Samuel here, has been making it clear that Joab is a very effective killing machine. And he has done it again here. Without being stabbed again, he died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. So you fall on, this, you fall on all this? So je- the new general that David has replaced is gone. And the old general, Joab, has self-appointed himself as now the new general after, or the old general became the new general. You following me? Okay. So uh, we uh, have made it through verse 10. Uh, One commentator writes this. He says, The kiss of Joab thus turns out to be the kiss of Judas. As the New Testament believer reads this, we think, of course, of that betrayal as we think about this betrayal here in verse 10. Let's come back to our text. We're at verse 11. One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, and the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who had come up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. After Amasa had been removed from the road, All the men went on with Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. So David's objective is now going to be accomplished, but it is going to be accomplished by the self-reinstated new general, Joab, and the man that David appointed is gone. All of 2 Samuel chapter 20 is a dark chapter. David is just dealing with a mess in his own life, in his own family, in the nation, in his military. It's just wave after wave after wave after wave of pain, of grief, of loss, of insubordination, of men killing men in his own army. He is having more than a difficult day. Some of you, although our lives are very different than David's, our lives are similar in knowing the darkness of getting hit wave after wave after wave after wave. And so a question as we seek as readers to identify with the common mutual human condition that David is experiencing here, what he is experiencing is nightmare after nightmare, division after division, a a, a country that is not going well, a family that is not going well, a palace that is in disarray, finally putting a guard up and protecting these women. 
And so I would like to suggest a question that you and I ask at times like these, when we are experiencing our own wave after wave of darkness and need hope, is to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus sufficient for this? Is Jesus sufficient for you fill in the blank if you happen to be in that kind of a situation today? Hopefully you're not, but if you are, you fill in that blank with that situation of wave after wave of discouragement, of darkness. Now, Some of these things are David's own doing, but some of them are not his own doing here in chapter 20. And it is just coming. And as you and I, as followers of Christ, ask the question, is Jesus sufficient for blank? Whatever it is that I'm going through, a broken relationship, wave after wave of darkness, whatever it is, the answer is that he is sufficient. He is sufficient, church. In Philippians 4, Paul is describing what it's like to live with riches and wealth and plenty, and then he's describing what it's like to, to live with, with nothing, being hungry, being beaten, being in prison. And, and he's saying, as an older man, I, 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 I've, I've discovered how to live in both of these situations. It's through Christ. He is sufficient. He is sufficient, especially for those hard times for living in desperation whether that's physical desperation or mental desperation or relational desperation, is Jesus sufficient to see you through something like the experience that David is experiencing in 2 Samuel 20? And I want to say the answer is yes. He is sufficient. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he will see you through. This is a dark chapter, but there is a glimmer of light coming. Would you like some light? Would you like something good? Rather than intestines on the ground and concubines having to have a guard? I mean, this is a dark chapter. But finally, we have some good person. Uh, you've heard the saying, uh, the, mess, the best man for a job is a woman. So that, that's where we're, we're headed here, to a woman who's going to save chapter 20 um, in some ways. So let's uh, turn there, chapter 14. So the guys are pursuing the general that David has appointed is dead. Joab has resumed command, but he's doing what David wanted. So verse 14, Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Beth, Maaka, and through the entire region of the Barites, who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged Sheba in Abel Beth Maaka. They built a siege ramp up to the city, and it stood against the outer fortifications. Let's pause here for a moment. So, why are they building a siege ramp? Well, because the bad guy has made his way into the city. And basically when that happens, unless you have good engineering and a lot of time, once you make it into this fortified city, you're going to be victorious. Unless you, you, you build a siege ramp. Now we don't have evidence of this particular location, but what I have on the screen here is a different city, Lachish, and on the left, or on the right-hand side there, there was a siege ramp built. And you, if you travel there today, you can actually see this siege ramp that was built in the 8th century. Here's a, a picture of it from above. 
This is an example from another location of what we're reading about in this passage. And here's a close-up of it. They would build a ramp up to the walls, up to the city, and then the army, once it was built, this would take, I don't know, engineers would have to figure out how long it would take to do this. They would set up like a quarry, and they would move rock and build a siege ramp. Now, I put a passage up here, 2 Kings. This is a, obviously a modern-day photo of a siege ramp from 800 years before the time of Christ. It was built uh, by an attacking enemy to a city, and that city was destroyed. But in 2 Kings 19.32, there is a prophecy about that same time in the 8th century saying there is one city that will be protected, and that city was Jerusalem. And almost every other city in Israel was wiped out in this time with the exception of Jerusalem because there was a prophecy that it would be protected by God, and it was. And it is very enjoyable to read archaeological literature about these things, and you see how the Bible proves to be historically accurate, even if the archaeologists don't believe in Christ or in the Bible, and that is the case here. All right, so back to our text. They have built this siege ramp, Joab and his men, to get the guy who's trying to divide the kingdom and go after David. We're in the middle of verse 15. It says, while they were battering the wall to bring it down, here's the good part, a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen. So, so they've done all this engineering work. The, the massive army is about to take over the city and a woman comes to the wall. Listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went toward her, and she asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. She said, Listen to what your servant has to say. I like that. <laughs> She's telling the general of the army that's about to destroy this city to listen to her, but she says, Listen to what your servant, I like that. Listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, long ago, they used to say, get your answer at Abel. And that settled it. We are the peaceful and faithful in Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Now, this is awesome. This is a city that you would want to live in. This was a city that was known for wisdom and love and generosity. And Joab knows that. And Joab's about to destroy this city. And this wise woman, you might remember, we had another wise woman of Tekoa back in chapter 14. This unnamed wise woman of 2 Samuel 20 is trying to prevent bloodshed and warfare. <laughs> Do we need more people like that? Do you think the Middle East could use some wise women right now? There is about to be a slaughter of a city that has this incredible reputation. There is about to be a slaughter of David's army. So she challenges the general who is known for violence. Verse 20, look at his response. Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy he knows the, the, the reputation the city has. I, I don't know of a city in the world today that has this kind of reputation. It's a reputation for wisdom. That is not the case. He's saying, I, I don't want to destroy this city. A man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. 
against the anointed one is what he's saying to this woman. I could just picture this conversation. He's at the, near the top of the siege ramp, you know, getting ready to destroy the place. And he says, hand over this one man and I'll withdraw from the city. Now here's another culturally, culturally distant thing. I'm trying to picture some of you wise women uh, saying this. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown to you from the wall. <laughs> I don't know. We got any women here that would say that? <laughs> we got a couple. So we're 3,000 years removed, and this sounds really bad to us, but I want to suggest that this is actually a good thing, what she's saying. Look at verse 22. Then the woman went to all the people. So I think that's important to take this positively and redemptively. This isn't interpersonal violence. I want to suggest this is state violence or city violence. This is state-sanctioned violence. Easy for me to say. She went to all the people with her wise advice. This would include the elders, including the men who didn't have the wisdom to go and talk to Joab. And they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. I would like to suggest this is the execution of justice and a literal execution of someone who has violated Torah, has gone against the king. And this is something we rarely see in our country. I'm not saying we should have beheadings, but I'm talking about the speed of justice here. The speed of justice is swift and loss of life is prevented. So he sounded the trumpet and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. I'm going to point out one more thing here. I've refrained from pointing most of these things out because they're more complicated and I will lose many of you, but this one is not complicated. The narrator, the author, all scripture has two authors, God the Holy Spirit and a human author. The human author of First and Second Samuel, we don't know who he or she is, probably a he, we don't know who the person is, but he has used literary techniques that are beautiful and sophisticated throughout this book. Most of them I have not drawn to your attention. But you may have noticed that there was a trumpet at the beginning of this chapter. And there is a trumpet at the end of this chapter. If you look back uh, at the very beginning here, he sounded the trumpet and shouted, the bad guy did. And now we have the good guy sounding his trumpet the good guy Joab, who the real good guy is the wise woman, not of Tekoa, but of Abel, who has prevented the slaughter and has, has, has um, executed justice through the city. So we have this procedure that scholars, this literary technique called inclusio or bracketing, whatever you want to call it, where at the beginning and the end, you have this thing going on that is framed. What we also have going on here. Is, is something that is masterfully and beautifully wise and prevents the loss of life. Our friend uh, Aquinas, who I quoted some weeks ago, he writes, a lesser evil must be accepted when there is question of avoiding a greater. I don't actually think this is a lesser evil. I think that this was the execution of state justice here. But if you disagree with that and you say this, she, she should have done something else and not lopped his head off or had the people lop his head off, uh, then, then you might see that this way. So I am suggesting in this very dark chapter, three 
three statements or three questions. Will you forgive me for blank is something that we should be asking regularly. David doesn't do that as he returns to Jerusalem. The second question, is Jesus sufficient for whatever this is that I'm going through? Is Jesus sufficient to see me through something like the wave after wave of trouble that David is experiencing in 2 Samuel 20? Yes, he is. And then third, the wise woman of Abel. She had tremendous courage. Tremendous courage. And so, As we identify with her, everyone else we've identified in this text are pretty much negative things, things we don't want to do. Here we have someone doing something we want to do. What is it that God might want you to have courage? Nobody else went to the wall with the attacking army and said, hey, let me talk to the general, the one who's known for being violent. I want to talk to him. That took tremendous courage, and God's grace can strengthen you and me to have courage in our lives. And that is the note I want to end on today. Let's ask God right now to help us to have that sort of courage. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, there are a lot of dark things in this chapter, but we are thankful for this wise woman of Abel who was full of courage. Lord, I don't know where each of us are here today when it comes to having courage, to living for Jesus, to having courage to be a peacemaker in in a place of conflict in our family or in our church or in our neighborhood, whatever it might be, God. Some of us here today, I think, very likely need your grace to be courageous men and women and to take risks to advance your kingdom and to do good. And we are thankful for this wise woman of Abel who did that. We thank you for her. In Jesus' name, amen.